This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Karma and Compassion, recorded September 19, 1993, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the question this morning was, how do you deal with uh, bad karma, bad luck, uh, a turn of fate that's against you, and how could you deal with it compassionately? What do we mean by bad luck or karma or fate or providence? It's uh, very interesting that in all traditions there is some uh, word that expresses the idea that things are not unfolding just randomly or haphazardly. That history, writ large with a big H, the history of humanity, and the history of each individual has a meaning. And in the East, that's usually expressed as karma. Things don't just happen to you randomly, they happen for a reason. And the most uh, exoteric level of understanding of karma is that you've done bad deeds in the past, the, the, they're like seeds that have been planted and now they are coming to fruition. So whatever you're experiencing now is uh, the fruition of your past deeds. By the way, it could be good deeds. So if you're having a good time, if you find what you want in this life, then that means that good deeds are coming to fruition. In the West, it's more often expressed in terms of the providence of God. It's the will of God. So whatever happens isn't happening just for no reason. It's happening because there's some intelligence behind it. There's some wisdom behind it. It's happening for a reason, even if you don't know the reason. And so the, the teaching here is to relate to what's happening to you in terms of that. Not just to dismiss it as just bad luck. To ask the question, why has this happened? There, they seem to be on the surface quite different ways of expressing this meaning in, in history and meaning in a personal life. But really, from a mystical point of view, they point to the same sorts of lessons. They're just a, a different way of conceiving it to get you to focus on what's happening to you in a specific way. The first lesson you can learn any time you run into a streak of bad luck. Some of the examples people gave earlier was you, you're looking for peace and quiet and you get a house full of uh, noisy neighbors into loud rock and roll parties or something like that. You, you get a job, it looks like it's going to be a great job, and you find uh, the, that your boss is an abusive, insulting, rude, uh, horrible person to work with. It may be more serious. You may enter into a relationship, a marriage, with someone who seems wonderful at first, and you find out they are really abusive, physically abusive. Uh, rarely it happens, though. You may find that you're accused of a crime that you're innocent of and arrested and thrown into jail. This seems to be a, a, a drastic miscarriage of justice. And, of course, at the greatest extremes, we have things like uh, innocent children being killed in war, uh, the 
the whole Holocaust, uh, what's going on in Serbia today, and so forth. There seems to be no rhyme or reason in these things. But let's stick with our personal lives, because what is what we find is true in our personal lives is also true of history writ large. What can you learn from a situation in which you find yourself that's very painful or uncomfortable or unjust, not fair? What sort of attitude can you take to it to spiritualize that situation? There's first a, a lesson that is always available in those situations, and that is a very a fundamental lesson of the spiritual path. There is no happiness outside yourself. There is no permanent happiness outside yourself. Any happiness that depends on exterior conditions is a, a sense of false happiness, a transitory happiness. If your happiness depends on finding a quiet house and then your neighbors destroy it because they play loud rock and roll music, that is not true happiness. If your happiness depends on having a comfortable work situation with an understanding, helpful boss, that is not true happiness. Even if your happiness depends on uh, having the freedom to move around and you find yourself in jail, that freedom was not a true freedom. This has to do with the impermanent nature of all conditions, all things. They are always going to be changing. If you rented a house and you found out the neighbors were these loud rock and rollers and they played loud music late at night and so forth and then you complain to the, the police and you complain to their landlord and maybe eventually you get them evicted. And they move out and some, uh, I don't know, uh, a family of deaf people moves in. And you think, ah, now there's happiness, right? But they're going to move out and some other rowdies are going to move in. It's never going to last. You may have a wonderful job with a wonderful boss. And then the company moves down to Mexico and you're out of a job and uh, all that happiness evaporates. Any happiness that depends on something outside is not true happiness. Now, this is a very hard lesson to learn. It sounds intellectually easy. It's obvious to us intellectually that things are impermanent. That nothing lasts, nothing, nothing, not even the stars. And yet, we don't learn it at a deeper level, at the level that it counts. We continue to believe that they could, that we could just shore up this condition a little longer, a little longer, milk a little bit more out of it. Keep that old car running just a few more miles. And when it breaks down on us in the middle of nowhere, we get unhappy. 
but it's bound to break down sometime. What's amazing is that we're surprised that we react this way. Like it or not, fair or not, just or not, this is just the way things are. They are impermanent. And most people, and it's a large component of delusion, most people under delusion seek happiness in things. In conditions, in situations, in relationships. None of which can ever last. It's also interesting that even if you arranged your life exactly the way you wanted it, you got the perfect spouse, the perfect boss, the perfect house, down to every little detail, the perfect petunia in the garden, the perfect cat, if you got it, if you could ever manage to get it all together, that one perfect moment, let's say at 12.13 noon on Monday, 12.14 it would be coming unraveled. Do you realize that? If this is your perfect vision, there's no more perfect to get, the next moment it's got nowhere to go but down. At 12.14, the petunia starts to wilt in that hot sun. At 12.15, the cat is two minutes older and two minutes closer to death, as, by the way, are you. So what uh, our, our um, searching for this, being able to perfectly arrange our lives to achieve some sort of perfect uh, arrangement in our lives is diluted. It's literally crazy in the sense that it cannot be done. People who put all their life energy into trying to accomplish a task which in the nature of things cannot be done are diluted. That's the definition of being diluted. As I say, it's, it's something easy to understand intellectually. It's very difficult, really, to understand it at that fundamental level in our lives where it will make a difference, where we will start to change our attitudes about the world, about the nature of impermanence. We don't like that fact about the world. We have tremendous resistance to really recognizing that's true. So one of the first steps on the spiritual path is to observe the impermanent nature of things. To recognize the impermanence in the moment as you're there, not just when you're sitting around thinking about it uh, on a Sunday afternoon at a high-level spiritual talk or something. When you're in your house with the neighbors playing rock and roll, to note in detail it's impermanent down to the very notes of the rock and roll music, you know? On a job with a boss that's uh, abusive and insulting and so forth. Instead of having this, uh, setting up this barrier and sort of closing off to it and going inside and wishing and fantasizing, oh, I wish I wasn't here, oh, I wish I didn't have this boss, oh, I've got to do something to get out, stop that. 
observe what's going on. In, in uncomfortable situations, painful situations, it's actually easier to observe impermanence. Because we take notice, we become quite sharp and alert. We should also try to, uh, to notice impermanence in comfortable, peaceful, happy situations. So we don't delude ourselves that this is going to continue. So if you find yourself a nice, peaceful, quiet afternoon and uh, you have a nice house that's uh, in the country and so forth and you're sitting there listening to the chirping of the crickets and the birds, rather than just lulling yourself to sleep enjoying this, notice each cricket chirp is impermanent. Each bird note is impermanent. And notice even your own moods. This isn't a question about not being happy that you are or, uh, or feel good that you are in a quiet situation. Most important, notice that you do feel good. Oh, this is feeling good. And notice how that feeling will change. Notice if you're in a noisy situation that you feel bad. And then when they finally do shut up playing for the rock and roll for a while, notice what relief is. Ah, relief. Notice that your emotions are all impermanent. A more subtle delusion is that if we could arrange all the furniture of the world properly, then we would reach a certain emotional state where our emotions would stay still. They would get to this place where they would just be nice. We could sort of exist in this, bathe in this state of just having nice feelings. It's equally diluted. Even if you could arrange all the furniture the way you want it and produce these nice feelings, and let's say you could actually hold that furniture there for a, a length of time, and so you could sort of stop the clock there at 12.13, not allow the clock to move forward to 12.14, but, but you still would move forward. You would find that these nice, wonderful emotions, after a while, they get boring. They'll be bored to death. Nothing will change. You'll get suddenly very restless. Nothing outside will change, but those emotions themselves will dissolve in this boredom and restlessness and so forth. You can never fix emotions. Happiness is not about finding uh, a, a superior kind of emotion and holding on to this particular emotion, like a note of a beautiful symphony, do you know? You take a beautiful note in a, in a symphony of ding, and if you could hold on to it, it'll go ding, and pretty soon it'll drive you nuts. Instead of resisting the impermanence of the world, observe the impermanence of the world. It's called facing reality. And I've said many times, a lot of people accuse mystics of not facing reality, of being escapists. They want to go off in a cave and meditate on their navel or something like that. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. Mysticism is about facing reality. It's not about fairy tales, about uh, uh, there's a God in heaven and everything is nice. 
It's about facing reality. Now, the reality ultimately turns out to be, according to the testimony of the mystics, blissful and happy beyond your wildest imagination. But that's not a fantasy. That's not something to dream about. That's something to discover in the moment through facing reality. Nobody, there are no shortcuts. Somebody may have a very quick path. Somebody may be enlightened in, in 30 seconds. But there are no shortcuts. And I'll give you one example that I know of, and that's Ramana Maharshi. How many of you ever heard of Ramana Maharshi? Just out of curiosity. Oh, good, musty. Ramana Maharshi was a great uh, contemporary Hindu mystic of this century. He again died fairly recently, last 10 years or so. He was, his enlightenment came when he was 19 years old. He was a schoolboy, uh, I'm sorry, 16 years old. He was a schoolboy. He had not much interest in spirituality. He was mostly interested in sports. He wasn't very good as, at his studies in school. And he was staying with his uncle and he came home one day and he put his books down on the table and he realized he was going to die. And he thought, I'm going to die now. And he lay down on the floor and note this, he went with it. He didn't resist and say, oh no, I'm going to die. He observed, what is death going to be like? What is it like? And he felt his body grow still and he felt his mind grow still. And he, and in his mind's eye, he could see uh, the people come and take his corpse and carry it off to the uh, cremation ground and burn it up. He, he experienced, I don't know what this was, three, four, five minutes. He experienced death facing reality completely, fully, having his body burned. And at the other end of that, he realized, oh no, but it doesn't matter. All this was just impermanent anyway. I am not that body. I am not these emotions. I am not these thoughts. I am something else. But he didn't get there through fantasizing about it, wishing about it, or just hearing about it intellectually. He got there through going through that full and complete experience of death, which is, for a human being, probably no greater lesson in impermanence. That's why in the spiritual traditions, death is a great opportunity. Normally, we fear it. And we put it off and we don't like to think about it, talk about it. In many spiritual traditions, they take death as a practice, Tibetan tradition particularly, because it's a great opportunity. One Tibetan teacher uh, described it this way to me. He said, you know, he said, all our lives, in a certain sense, uh, our, our life is uh, not cooperating with our spiritual path. It's, it, our lives are full of all sorts of desires and attachments and so forth. And we have a certain biological instinct to keep going. But at death, suddenly the whole cosmos is cooperating with you. Suddenly with a, with a spiritual path. Suddenly everything in the cosmos is going to become one single pointed teaching about impermanence. And there'll be no evading that teaching then. It's a good idea to practice beforehand. So you can take advantage of it. 
But to get back to this problem of our the history of our lives, how they unfold, what happens to us, good or bad, it all has this nature of impermanence. And whether our our present uh, uh, situation is good or bad, it is the first lesson we can always learn. And it's very simple to learn. It's just to observe. To observe. When you, the only way you yourself really are convinced of anything is when you have observed it for yourself. If I tell you that the Virgin Mary is sitting out there on the back lawn, she's come to visit us, most of you probably won't believe it. Some of you will probably be a little bit skeptical. Some of you may say, well, gee, I really don't think Joel would lie. I guess I'll, I believe it. But you won't really be convinced unless you go out there and look. And when you see the Virgin Mary, then there's no more uh, uh, doubt. At least there's no more doubt you're seeing something. You may think it's some trick done with mirrors or something like that, but, but uh, you will not doubt that you are seeing something. You cannot doubt that that naked experience. And this is what uh, you can always learn in any moment of your life, good or bad, whatever the circumstances is, the impermanent nature of it. And through learning that lesson, you'll be weaned from this idea that happiness can never come from outside yourself. So it's very important for us to experience both good things and bad things in our life. It's very important uh, to have this experience. People, some people's lives are so sheltered, they're almost like the uh, the story of the young Buddha whose father didn't want him to know anything about death or impermanence, and sent the gardeners out to in the morning, in the early morning, to clip all the dying buds so that the young prince would never experience deterioration or anything unpleasant. And some people set their lives up this way. Or maybe fate has dealt them this hand. They growing up, they grow up in a rich, uh, wealthy household, and so forth. They're never exposed to any anything unpleasant. It's a gr- it's not a great blessing. It's a great curse. Believe me, truly, it's a great curse. In, uh, Ingrid Bergman, the actress, most of you I'm sure have heard of. Uh, wrote a book about her life. It wasn't a great spiritual book, but she had a very stormy life. She had several marriages and a very passionate life and this and that. And the last part of her life, she had breast cancer. And she went through many years of coping with breast cancer and operations and so forth. And somebody, uh, towards the end of her life, uh, uh, somebody who had read her book asked her or approached her uh, and said, gee, I, I read your book and I, you know, I felt so sorry for you. You've had such a uh, you know, an unhappy life, all these things happen to you. And, and she said, what? She said, don't feel sorry for me. She said, I value all that that happened. She said, I would have been a very shallow person if none of that had happened to me. She said, that, that's what I learned from. She's not even particularly on a spiritual path, but she recognizes the wisdom in this uh, pain and suffering. This is also, incidentally, why, uh, particularly in uh, Christian tradition, there's an emphasis on embracing suffering instead of turning away. Embracing it. Being thankful for suffering because it's a teacher. Because you can learn. Without it, you cannot. 
You can't. Now, this is a, a crucial moment when you really begin to realize for yourself, to have this insight, that you cannot ever be find happiness uh, outside yourself. No happiness can ever depend on exterior conditions. It raises the question, is happiness possible at all? Maybe it isn't. Maybe it isn't. You've got the mystic's word uh, testimony that says, yes, it is. But it certainly doesn't look like that sometimes. Maybe life is just nothing but hell. Endless hell. Meaningless. A sound and fury signifying nothing. Maybe that's true. You have to face that possibility. This is again facing reality. It's giving up our false ideas of what happiness is or what it could be. Our dreams, our daydreams. As St. Paul said, when I was a child, I played with childish things. Now that I'm a man, and today we'd say also now that I'm a woman, I've put away childish things. It requires a maturity, a spiritual path, a growing up. There ain't no Santa Claus. There ain't. So that's the, the value of this constant shifting of our perceived happiness and unhappiness. It makes us really face fundamental questions of life. Now you can, you, you get to that point, you can take that question two ways. You can decide that there is no happiness, so screw it. And in my own life, at one point, I did feel that. And then you can get very cynical and you can say, well, I'm just going to get whatever I can and, and just, you know, uh, to hell with everybody else and so forth. And you might go through that period. That will be a teaching for you also. You'll find yourself becoming really miserable, really cynical, bitter. A lot of people that our culture admires successful business people and so forth. People who seem to be completely in control, who order other people around and so forth. Our culture holds them up and thinks they are happy. They command vast resources, jet planes and whatnot. My experience in never had that sort of power, but in a little way was that they are miserable. And my experience being with people like that was that they are miserable far more miserable than the people I met, for instance, on in my last job working in a paint factory down the street here. Truly. Or you might take this, uh, reaching this point, you might take it this way. Well, the mystics say, actually, there is a happiness, a true happiness, a real happiness, the key to which is inside me, not dependent on all these things. And in fact, it's a happiness far beyond any happiness I ever dreamed possible by having just a nice quiet house or a nice job or the right mate or money in the bank or anything like that. So, supposing they're wrong. So what? If I spend my life pursuing that path, finding out for myself whether they're right or wrong, and it turns out I never find out, and I end up in the grave, 
in the end, it's, it all comes out in the wash. There's no difference between me and the, a wealthy millionaire, a king, a president. I got nothing to lose. We're all going to be food for the worms anyway. But supposing it's true. Supposing it's true. Then I've got everything to gain. Everything to gain. Now, I say this speaking from my own experience. This was a, a turning point in my own path. A big turning point. A crucial turning point because you really begin to let go of this idea that happiness can be gotten outside yourself. Truly start to let go of that. Your orientation starts to deeply turn around in your life. For most people in the beginning of the spiritual path, there's a sort of a constant tug. Yes, well, they want to do some meditation. Yes, they're curious about the things mystics uh, talk about and all this. Yes, but they also want, you know, the, how, the quiet house, the nice job, and this and that. And they go through a sort of a balancing act, trying to juggle <laughs> all these things. But if you come to this place of insight and even despair, then the orientation switches around. In a certain sense, it's because you've got nothing left to lose. You've got enough wisdom to see now there's nothing to lose. In that moment, you start to learn the first positive lesson of a spiritual path. Freedom. doesn't matter whether you're in a uh, quiet house or a noisy house. It doesn't matter, ultimately, on your job, whether you have a good boss or not you already start to have a freedom from that. It doesn't mean you still won't experience like or dislike. You have a freedom from that. It doesn't mean you stop experiencing emotions. In fact, your emotions may get even more strong. But you have a certain freedom from that. You have a freedom from that, and you also develop a new dimension of awareness. Buddhism is called mindfulness, uh, paying attention. Whatever is happening, and whatever your reaction to it is in the moment, is not unlike it was before. Your boss is insulting you, and you're feeling rotten, and there's a voice inside you saying, I wish I could strangle this person. But now there's something else watching. I'm saying, isn't this interesting? What is going on here? Observing. Now you don't get up in the morning solely with the idea of how am I going to arrange the furniture today so I can be happy today. You get up in the morning with the idea of what's going to happen today. How interesting it's going to be. What am I going to learn from it? Good or bad. Good or bad. This is really bringing mindfulness into your life. You're now trying to watch it from a spiritual point of view. Is it true what all these mystics say, everything's impermanent? Is it true that my own emotions are impermanent? Is it true that my own thoughts are impermanent? My own body sensations? By gosh, it is. I can see it moment to moment here. It's quite amazing. You might get some uh, consolations from this, as it's called in some traditions. You might start to see the, the fact that, that the beauty of the world depends on the world's impermanence. 
The very fact that it's all in permanence is what makes it beautiful. If you could ever freeze the world as you dream, you would destroy all the beauty in the world. It'd be just like taking a, a, a beautiful dance and saying to the dancer, stop right there. That's the perfect pose. That's the perfect gesture. Don't move. Just stop right there and freeze them for all time. It's the end of the dance. In the dance, there's no one gesture that's more beautiful than the other. They all have a piece. They all flow together. You can't say, oh, I like this one, but I didn't like this. But I like that. You can't get from here to here without that. And so when you give up this attempt to make the world uh, fixed and permanent, when you can experience fully and completely the impermanence of the world, you start to see the beauty of the world. It has nothing to do with whether you what you like and don't like, by the way. It's a deeper, more fundamental beauty. Now, you start to say, through your own experience, mind you, this is very important. You've not been convinced by some teacher. The only thing a teacher might convince you to do is to try this. But you start to know from your own experience, gee, this works. Gee, this is true. Gee, it is everything is impermanent. I'm never going to find happiness uh, outside myself. And when I start to look, when I start to observe, when I start to rely on myself in this relative sense, I start to see glimpses of a kind of a happiness uh, that, that maybe only rarely I experienced in my life before, in certain spontaneous moments. But now they start to sort of peek through. Now you start to look inside. All the mystics direct you to look inside. Where is the kingdom of God? It's within. Where do you find the Buddha nature? It's your own nature. All of the traditions direct you to look in. So you begin to look in. And now you find another very, very important lesson. Fundamental lesson. That your unhappiness is totally self-generated. This, again, sounds like an extreme, uh, maybe very hard-nosed teaching. Do you mean if I was unjustly thrown in prison and condemned to death, that my unhappiness is somehow my responsibility? This is what mystics say, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's your responsibility. Your happiness is your responsibility in any and every imaginable circumstance. Be careful. This is not a teaching about judging other people and saying, oh, they're miserable, it must be their fault. It has nothing to do with anybody else. It only has to do with you. It's only a teaching that's valuable applied to you. When you begin, begin to really study what is unhappiness, when you can apply that observation that you've applied outwardly to the impermanence of all things inwardly, when you can start to see things like the nature of your own self-conflict, the, the discrepancy between the image of yourself and how the world reflects you back to yourself, 
So, for instance, one of the things about on a job is you might have an image of yourself as being a very competent person. And one of the reasons you may be very unhappy with a boss who's insulting is they're always running you down. They're always telling you how incompetent you are and so forth. What, where does the unhappiness arise here? Is it the boss's fault or is it because you're hanging on to some image of yourself? And the very fact that this image can be attacked and you can respond to it gives you a clue that there's something false about this image. And if you watch more closely, you'll see actually you don't have one image of yourself, you have several images of yourself. And you'll see that you're also subtly always trying to fix up these images of yourself. Like an obsessive painter will never finish a painting, you know, inside. These are subtler insights to have, subtler truths, but they become very real and vivid when you experience them. And somewhere along the line, you begin to understand what this teaching means. There's a paradox in this teaching. You are responsible for your own happiness and your own unhappiness. And what causes your unhappiness is the fact that you think you're a you. Weird. You begin to see as long as there is a sense of self there, an experience of self, an experience of some I in there to protect, to defend, to gain, or they could lose. As long as your life is operating from this basis, you're bound to have unhappiness. Inevitable. And then you start to watch closely, and because there is no solid I in there, you will have uh, experiences and insights when that that sense of I gets very thin or even disappears momentarily. And then you discover something amazing. This is happiness. This is happiness. The day you walk in and your boss turns around and starts insulting you and you realize there's no one there, there's no target for those darts and they, start, they just fly through. It's, it's an occasion for laughter. It's humorous. And then, finally, the third lesson you learn. The third lesson you learn. When you're no longer absorbed with this self and making this self happy and making this self comfortable and making this self uh, noise-free or whatever, when all that energy that goes there is released and turns outward, the very person that you saw as your enemy, you see with compassion. You don't have to force compassion. You don't have to work up emotions of compassion for this person. You look and you see somebody who's hostile and aggressive and you see, you know, because you've been there. Not because you're superior, not because uh, uh, you were born uh, on some higher level. It's because you've suffered. You've observed your suffering. You've observed yourself. And you recognize suffering. You just recognize suffering. It's not my suffering, not your suffering. You just recognize suffering. It's just manifesting there in your boss. It's manifesting in your neighbors next door, playing the loud music. You see what I mean? 
And then you find what you're about in life. There's no problem. There's no question. You don't have to figure out, what am I doing here? You find there's suffering and there's responsive compassion. There's suffering and there's the responsive compassion. It happens that spontaneously and that naturally. So, this run of ill luck, this bad karma we run into, this nasty fate we experience, is really our best teacher. If we take it that way, if we truly take it as a teacher, not just saying, oh yes, life's a teacher. And we're willing to learn the hard lessons. We're willing to face the truth and the reality. Then you begin to see this is the most precious of opportunities. So is good karma and good fate, but it's harder. It's much more difficult for us to become aware and alive and alert when things are working well for us. We don't have that goad and that prod of suffering to get us off our duff. This is why Jesus said, love your enemies. What good does it do you to love your friends? What does it profit you to love your friends? Everybody loves their friends. You can't learn anything or much from loving your friends. I shouldn't say anything. You always learn from love. You learn far more, far dr more dramatically and far more concisely and far more vividly by loving your enemies. And the first thing about loving your enemies, and it's a wonderful practice to pick an enemy and try to love, and that you'll find out what this teaching means. If you never try it, you will never find out what this teaching means. But one of the first things is long before you love your enemy, you love the fact that you have an enemy. You appreciate the enemy. The next time you meet the enemy, it's not like, oh gosh, what am I doing here? I wish I could get out of this room. You, you really learn gratitude, true gratitude. The same teaching is in, for instance, Buddhism, particularly Tibetan Buddhism. To take your enemy as your primary guru, the person who insults you, who abuses you, who misuses you, that is your guru. That sounds like a nice poetic thing to say. But it's true. It's, it's true at such a nitty-gritty level. Do we listen to these teachings and the whole secret is to apply them to your life. Take them to heart and apply them to your life. And you can transform your whole life into a spiritual teaching. This is what true transformation means. True transformation does not mean that you're growing and, and you're becoming uh, something greater than you are now, or that you're transforming your life by becoming more comfortable and getting more things or whatever, or having more experiences and traveling broadly. By the way, all of which are not that they're evil or bad or anything. True transformation of your life spiritually means that everything that is happening right today, just as it's happening right today, has a whole other meaning. It is now suddenly all saturated with meaning for you. 
Nothing is going by accidentally. There's nothing that you can't make grist for your mill. That all of life is precious. The rotten side of the apple as well as the tasty side of the apple. Nothing is to be rejected as worthless or valueless. Sometimes you can feel on a spiritual path, you're overwhelmed. It's too much. Not mean there's too much suffering that's being thrown on me, that the insights and the depths of what opens up to you is too much to comprehend at once. <laughs> you have to go slowly a little bit. When that happens, you know, when that, this is the really the turning point on a spiritual path. This is where you take off and basically you're on your own. I mean, you still, teachers are still valuable and teachings are still valuable and so forth. This is what it means to discover the inner teacher. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a little voice inside your head that's giving you directions. Although that can happen and I bear witness to that. But truly discovering the inner teacher is when your whole life you really see as a teaching to the point where you have gratitude for it. Then your life is transformed. Then you start to understand, oh, this is the will of God, the wisdom behind the will of God. You understand the teaching about karma as being your own deeds coming to fruition. This is the responsibility for your happiness. So all I can say is pay attention. Don't reject bad things that happen to you. Don't just automatically shove them away. Pay attention. Try to remember a teaching and apply it. Say, let me look at this in a different way. See what it will reveal to me. How specifically personal is it? Like, does she get the bad, the noisy house and she gets the boss, the bad boss, because those are the best lessons for that particular person? It's a perfect fit. Okay. <laughs> Nothing is missed absolutely perfect fit. You know why it's a perfect fit? Because the the line that separates you from your life is imaginary. Not only is it a perfect fit, it's, it's, it's you see, it's just one boundary. If I draw the boundaries a circle, then the inside is a circle, but so is the out form a circle. You see what I'm talking about? If I have a blackboard here and I draw a circle, right? Then I have two things. I have everything outside the circle, and its shape is the outside, you know, it's the, the out form. And the shape of the inner circle is the in form, and they share the same boundary, and they perfectly fit. And no matter how I redraw that boundary, and the great squiggles and all that, the outside fits the inside perfectly, like a jigsaw puzzle. Without a chip missing. Absolutely perfectly. Again, I have to say this is a warning. This teaching has nothing to do with uh, a social rules, uh, with an interpretation, a, a relativistic interpretation of history. It has nothing to do with judging anything outside yourself and your world. That's very important because it's a horribly uh, abused uh, teaching if it's not understood. And the, the trick is, it's, it's worthless unless it's a personal teaching for a practice. If I say the um, peasants in Mexico are all uh, suffering poverty and all that because it's their karma, 
if the next day the peasants in Mexico rise up and kill all the rich people in Mexico, then I have to turn around and say, well, that was the rich people's karma. You see, I mean, it doesn't add anything to the situation. The situation is just unfolding and it's just karma. It's, no, it's meaningless to apply it in that situation. It doesn't tell you anything. What's the compassionate thing to do if you find yourself in Mexico? You'll know. I can't tell you what the compassionate thing is to do if you find yourself in Mexico working with starving peasants. But if you always look for the compassionate thing to do, you'll never go wrong. If you always look for the selfless thing to do, you'll never go wrong. That might answer it, but I was thinking, like in the case of the bad boss, would the skillful thing, after you've observed it, then be to engage the boss more directly? Maybe. There's a certain amount of experiment goes on. You don't know. Take, take a, a, uh, an insulting boss. Let's not say bad boss. That's, your, that's exactly the ego's judgment. <laughs> this is a bad person, you see. But take a difficult person, somebody you find difficult. Then the whole practice is to experiment. Through that experimenting, you really want to learn about yourself, not about the other person. You know, if you got rid of that boss, you'll get another bad boss. I mean, life will give you that teacher again and again. You want to see, what is it that upsets me about this person? Let's say it's insults. That's a good one, do you know what I mean? Or somebody's just always being negative about your work. They're just always running down your work. You don't want to, you don't want to, if you focus on that person and say, what a terrible person they are, and this and that, and they're the cause of my unhappiness, you'll never find out the cause of your unhappiness. But if you turn around and in the moment and watch, here the person says, that's sloppy, that's terrible. And now you observe very closely your feelings, do you know what I mean? Your reaction, the image you have of yourself. That's where the learning comes in, you know what I mean? Now, sometimes you may want to experiment. Sometimes you may want to say, Today, or for a week, I'm not going to answer back at all. Try that. This is, this is not the best way to be. It's an experiment. I'm going to accept everything that's said, and I'm not going to respond. Now, another day, you may want to go in and say, whatever they say, if I think it's wrong, I'm going to speak right up. Do you know what I mean? Now, in both cases, you'll learn something about yourself. In the first case, you'll learn an awful lot about patience, You'll get to see an awful lot about what pushes your buttons and so forth. In the second case, you'll get to learn about courage. Are you really ready to speak up and jeopardize your job? Oh, but you have an attachment to my job here. I'm frightened of losing my job. That's why, now I, this is why I have this conflict inside. One, one hand, I want this job. The other hand, I don't want to put up with these, this abuse, right? You want things both ways. Again, impossible. You can't have things both ways. It's your own delusion that's causing your unhappiness here. So, you know, what you do in each little moment is, is something you have to find out. There's no teaching that can hold your hand and take you through those moments. The only teachings give you is principles or, or clues or something to look for, you know? The, the situation tells you. But you, you should experiment. You, should, you have to do a little experiment. And that's much better than running away from it because you'll just get it somewhere else, right? Much better. Now, there are times, look, everybody has a certain tolerance on a spiritual path. You get overwhelmed by something. And if you can run away, you know, there are times when it's better to, to retreat and fight again the next day. And you will, you will be presented with 
other opportunities, you know? Don't allow yourself to be completely overwhelmed. And we're talking in a very relative sense here. You may find a boss that just you cannot, you know, live with. Or you may find a boss that you've tried to do this sort of practice with and you've gotten as much out of it as you think you can or whatever. There may be other reasons involved too. That's okay. You know, it's not, this isn't the, the courage here is, is pushing yourself just a little bit beyond what you, you know, might have ordinarily done. You know, taking a little bit of risk. That's how you learn courage. A little bit more and more. You may find that life puts you in a situation you can't get out of, like jail. Well, now you're going to get a big crash course, you know. So, I mean, there you are. Sometimes that's easier. Sometimes life puts you in that situation because, actually, you didn't know you were ready for this, but you are. Many people get uh, illness, serious illness, and, and have just this reaction, even if they're not on a spiritual path, it really deepens their lives and changes their lives. And many people who have gone through a serious illness on the other side of it, well, Ingrid Bergman is a good example, will say it's the best thing that ever happened to them. Even though at the time, you know, they're full of resistance and, you know, they would have done anything to get out of it. I have a question for you. Does anything, has anything that I've said this morning relate to your own experience? Do you have an example from your own life of uh, this kind of lesson or this kind of approach? Yes. You wind up in the same situation over and over until you do recognize what you've done and then it's gone. But you repeat over and over in what to you may seem like a very different way, but you wind up in relationships with people. And all of a sudden, when you're fed up to the top of your head, you don't want this anymore. Then you finally recognize what it is that you've been doing, not what somebody else has been doing to you. You've been setting yourself up every time. That's a very good point, and relationships are a very good place to see that. There is an aspect of this, by the way, that is we might say has a cosmic dimension that doesn't necessarily depend on a relationship, but a re almost all relationships we have exercised some choice in getting involved in. And it's very interesting to watch, especially if you are a little bit older and have a history of relationships, it's very interesting to uh, observe your relationships and see how much of a pattern has been repeated and what sort of people you are attracted to and what sort of people you're repulsed by. And that, those are strong words, but everything in between there. And see how much of, uh, really see how much of that is coming from your side of it. And then ask, what is it that I really wa want here? Or what have I always wanted in this? There's a hidden, there's always a hidden want and there's a hidden fear. Our desires have always two aspects. There's what, you know, we're always afraid of something and we also want something. If we, sometimes the fear is just not getting what we want. But we're always, pushed by these opposites, pushed through by these opposites. So isn't it also wanting someone else to fulfill what we want instead of doing it ourselves? Very often. Throwing human, it off on somebody else. Human relationships are very rich and very complex, but, uh, you know... But if, if we look for something, we're looking for it, again, it's outside, not willing to do it ourselves. So we do repeat 
until we recognize that we can't get it from someone else. That's true. That's true. So one of the, I think one of the big, on a relative level, it's one of the big problems in, in relationships today from a sociological point of view in this culture. That in the past, marriage was not about your ultimate happiness. Your ultimate happiness didn't depend on your mate. Your mate was as much a, an economic necessity and had all sorts of other things involved in getting married. You know, a big one was economics. And we have this delusion today that happiness is going to come from your mate. And it's totally diluted from the point of view, has that image, you know, that they're going to find Mr. or Mrs. Wright and ride off in the sunset, and that's, that's the goal of life. But it's also an enormous burden for a partner to bear. Impossible burden. You're asking the partner to be God, because only God makes you happy like that. So really, what you're, when you are asking, consciously or unconsciously, someone else in your life to assume that role, you're asking them to play God as, as, a, as a relative form. And they can't. So it, it, it's, it's destructive both ways. Both ways. Human relationships are one of the best places to do practice because all aspects of our needs and wants and fears and desires are involved and come out. And so this is why uh, in Tibetan Buddhism it said that we should revere the world of sentient beings as much as the Buddha. Because the Buddha gives us the teaching of compassion, but without a field to practice in, it doesn't mean anything. And the field of our practice is each other. And they go hand in hand. If you have no teaching, and teaching here means it could be an inner teaching, no intuition, no awakening to this, then you go through life blind and you don't learn anything. On the other hand, if you have all the teachings in the world, but you have no place to practice them, you don't gain anything. This is why it's said, to, uh, symbolically speaking, in the East, the gods and goddesses and the god realms can't get enlightened. Nothing changes for them. It's just all bliss. They can't learn anything. There is no way they can get... They have to take a human birth to get enlightened. The preciousness of human experience lies in this shifting and alteration of our faith, our karma, our luck. That's what it seems to be to us. Well, if there are no more comments or questions, you're welcome to stay, and uh, we have some tea in there, and check out our library, and glad you could make it. <laughs>